journalism schools are predominantly women, two-thirds to three-fourths female enrollment at almost every journalism school. After about 8, 10, 12, 15 years, the ratios start changing, where it's clear the women are dropping out. More women may have entered journalism over the past few decades, but that doesn't mean they don't encounter the same challenges and indignities as the generations who came before them. So how did they overcome it? I'm Amelia Brust, and this is It's All Journalism. You're listening to It's All Journalism, and I'm Amelia Brust, subbing today for our regular host, Michael O'Connell. I'm talking with Kristen Grady-Gilger and Julia Wallace, authors of the new book, There's No Crying in Newsrooms. Kristen and Julia, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thanks. We're glad to be here. First thing I wanted to ask you is, uh, how did you guys come up with the idea for this book, and about how long did it take for you to write it? This is Kristen. I had been thinking about what it is like for women to move up into leadership positions in newsrooms and the kind of experiences they have. And I've been thinking about this for a long time. I spent 20 years in newsrooms, and I knew women had a lot of really interesting sometimes funny, sometimes sad, sometimes outrageous stories to tell about what their experiences were like. But I have like another job. So uh, (laughs) Julia and I had worked together twice before at newspapers. And when we hired her at the Cronkite School, even before she started, I called her up and said, "Uh, so how would you like to write a book with me? And she said, okay. And then it took us, what, about a year and a half, Julia, to finish it. Yeah. Yeah, we talked to almost 100 women, over 100 people in total. And so the reporting took some time because first everyone wanted to talk to us. And then when we got them on the phone, they couldn't stop talking because people had so many stories and so much insight they wanted to share. And then we also spent time in person with a number of the women we interviewed, especially those we were going into depth with and profiling in chapters. So we had some fun two, three-day visits with some of these women. How did you decide who you were going to interview for the book? So we wanted a mix. If I could maybe step back and talk about, there were we had a couple goals for the book. Our first goal was we felt there were a lot of amazing stories of women who had broken through barriers, had faced insurmountable obstacles to become at the top of the of the media business and that their stories hadn't been told and in fact in some ways their stories had been erased over the years you know much like the movie hidden figures and so we started with the idea that we wanted to tell those stories but our second goal was we looked at our students today and realized that they weren't prepared for the workplace of today and we wanted to help prepare them. And we thought we could do that by sharing the stories of those early women pioneers, but also some women who are more contemporary. And so our book is really a mix of women like Marcy McGinnis, who began at CBS in 1970 and ended up becoming the number two at CBS News, and Melissa Vox, who's a very different generation, who today is the publisher of Vox Media. So did you also kind of take into account you know, how the the mediums that these women work in may, you know, influence their experiences, may have a different impact on their experiences in news, not just over time, but their, you know, their experiences on a a day-to-day basis. Yeah, absolutely. So we wanted to make sure we were covering all the all the bases, all the platforms, and getting in all the voices. So we have women from 
you know, television, public radio, digital media, magazines, and newspapers are all represented. Different ages, different ethnic backgrounds, different experiences. So we tried to get all of that. So uh, in your interviews with these women, what was something that you heard that really surprised you? And maybe that was something that only one or two women experienced, or maybe it was something that a lot of women had in common in their time in journalism. A couple of things surprised me. One is I entered my first newsroom in 1975, and I don't think I appreciated at that point how much women a generation before me had fought to make it possible for me to be there. You know, they filed lawsuits, they stood up strong, and and in many cases at peril of their own careers, to make it possible for all of us. And so I understood it sort of in a sort of back of the headway. I don't think I understood it as deeply as I did in the reporting. The other thing that sort of was surprising to me is particularly women in the media today, several of them talked about the expiration date on women and how you can be successful in media into your 40s and 50s, but once you hit your 60s, it's very hard for women to survive in media. And we think of that as an, you know, if you think about that in TV, that's a, we know that very well from on-camera women. But even behind the scenes, they sort of looked at and said, you know, look at, you see all these guys who are in their 70s and 80s, and they're still experts in doing this and doing that. But so many of the women over 60 just sort of disappear especially in the digital space. Some of it, I think, is the nature of digital, where you know you have to be entrepreneurial and up-to-date at all times, but some of it is just culture, right? Yeah, I think it is a cultural issue. It's I, I was actually talking to a friend of mine recently about that comment, because I, I told her, you know, all these women in their 40s had said this, and she and I are both in our 60s. And she's like, yeah, it's like at some point, it's just like you become invisible. And she goes, it is the strangest thing to experience. Do you mean they become invisible, like, from a promotional standpoint? Yes, that when when the L.A. Times has an opening for an editor, they don't look around and say, oh, what women have really led papers to greatness? Or, you know, name the job, you know, name the opportunity. You know, there's so many women who have done such amazing work in leading, you know, the future of news. But... You know, look at the experts, look at the panels, look at the big jobs as they open up. They are seldom filled by, by when, you know, when they go for the more experienced person, you know, that seldom happens. I mean, one of the few exceptions is Amanda Bennett, who now heads Voice of America. But there aren't a lot of examples like that. Well, um, the two of you have some managerial experience. Julia, you were a managing editor at the Arizona Republic, the Chicago Sun-Times, and USA Today, and you're also a former market vice president for Cox Media Group Ohio, correct? Right, and I was also editor-in-chief at the Atlanta Journal-Constitution for 10 years, almost 10 years. Right, the first female editor-in-chief at the paper, right? Yes, I was. And only? And only, (laughs) yes. And Kristen, you also held uh, different editing roles at different newspapers. In fact, it seemed like your time at the Arizona Republic and the Statesman Journal in Salem, Oregon, overlapped with Julia's time there. Is that correct? Yeah, 
That's correct. That's how we got to know each other. So Julia was the editor and I was the managing editor in Salem, Oregon. And then she came to the Arizona Republic to be managing editor and brought me down to Phoenix, which is how I ended up at ASU eventually. Yeah. So when I when I read that, it made me wonder, have there ever been ex- times in the newsroom that either of you have had to champion each other or you've had to champion other women in the newsroom for one reason or another? And, and if so, how did that work out? I mean, I like to think that I've championed women in newsrooms my whole career from the time I was in New Orleans. You know, I was one of the very few female editors there, often the only woman in a news meeting. And and it was championing other women, identifying talent, mentoring them, trying to bring them up behind you. And then also just talking about coverage and the kinds of things that women might be more interested in in the newspaper. But I'm trying to think, I'm sure Julie and I have championed each other. I championed her coming to the Cronkite School. So I guess that's an example. Yeah, I mean, I think that when we talk about that, I, I mean, I would echo what Kristen said. I mean, I that has been a huge part of, of what I think's been important. It's championing women. It's championing people of color to create more diverse newsrooms. Because I believe that when we talk about the credibility issues today, we cannot solve them unless our newsrooms reflect our communities. And we've been talking about it for a really long time and have made not enough progress. And so I think that's sort of, in the scheme of things, I would say that's probably one of the, my most important values that I've sort of taken with me in every job, whether it's Kristen or someone else, is, is working to make sure that all voices are heard and encouraged. What do you think is something concrete that could kind of make that diversity push move a little faster. Mm. Personally, I don't think it it would be waiting for legacy media organizations to do it. I I anticipate it will take either, you know, local news outlets or more like startup and online, you know, more modern news outlets to kind of take the lead on that because they have less to risk by hiring people outside of the traditional hiring pool. So first, let me say, I am not willing to give legacy news organizations a break. I think that they still play an important role in our communities, and they need to fix their issues. And you see some progress. I mean, Susan Zarinsky being named head of CBS News was a great step forward in 2019. So I think that, you know, they need to stand up. I wish you were right about startups. I think that's what everyone thought. But I think the evidence is they're better than legacy newsrooms. But, you know, there's certainly a bro culture and other issues related to them. I mean, would you agree, Kristen? Yeah. And one of the chapters we focus on Melissa Bell, who is uh, head of Vox, and sort of her personal journey in coming forward to be seen as a leader of that organization. And we talked to a number of women in digital who it's kind of a mixed picture. So in some ways, digital media startups are more welcoming of women or more accepting because they're driven so much by analytics. So it's less about the personality or the the loud voice in the room. And, you know, you've got the numbers. This story worked. This story didn't work. We're reaching an audience. We're not reaching an audience. And that sort of 
evens the playing field a little bit. But at the same time, especially on the business side, the financing of new startups, women still face a lot of of struggles, and men still tend to head most of those organizations. You talked about how, you know, kind of some of the inspiration for the book came from talking with your students and seeing how their perceptions of what is acceptable workplace culture and their perceptions of news organizations is different from those of women who have been in the business for a really long time. I was wondering what sort of advice maybe the two of you have for women in journalism when it comes to, for lack of a better phrase, picking your battles, deciding what behavior maybe from male colleagues or male sources is maybe you can let that go versus when you really put your foot down and you really make a fuss about something because it's, you know, really upsetting to you or it's really preventing you from being able to do your job well. I'm going to have sort of a strong view here, which is I think we spent too much time picking our battles. I think we needed to pick less battles and speak up more. So, I mean, take that with a grain of salt. But I'll tell you an anecdote. I teach gender here to our students and I do this case study based on an experience Kristen had. So Kristen, you tell the story and then I'll, I'll explain sort of what the students do because it's sort of, I think it's indicative of how things are changing. Okay, if I have to. <laughs> so this is the pregnant story? Yeah. No, okay, yes, yeah. that one. Yeah. So I was the only female bureau chief at the Times Picayune in New Orleans, and I would sort of became... No, no sorry, not, not that, that one. story. Which one? The, oh, the, the other story. one, the source story. Okay, this is can a I, story. Can I just say okay, the so, fact that you had to, Claire, you had to remember which... Which pregnant story? Which, which story? She was pregnant oh, during both I, of these. Both of these are pregnant stories. <laughs> That's right. It's like, which pregnant story? Not that All right. pregnant story. All right. right. So I was a, the only female bureau chief and uh, at the time, Spicune in New Orleans. And I had a great story from an inside source in the sheriff's office. And the guy said, I needed the documentation. He said he would give me the documentation if I met him in this parking lot. It happened to be after dark. That should have given me a heads up, but I show up to the parking lot. I'm like five or six months pregnant, and he's got this manila folder, right, of these documents that I really, really want. And he stands there, and he's holding it, and he says to me, so I'll give you these if you sleep with me. The rest of the scenario that Julia presents to her class is, how would you answer that? Well, how would you respond to that? So the way Kristen responded is? I said, Eh, I don't want them that badly, and I walked away. I don't want the story that badly, and I walked away. And I said, that's so interesting, because that would have been not my response. I would have been, like, you know, sort of joked with him and still tried to get the documents, but obviously not slept with him, but sort of, you know, tried still to get the documents. When I talked to the students about it today, they're like, well, why didn't you report him? And it never occurred to me to report it, even to my own supervisors, much less his supervisor. Never occurred to me. I did tell my husband when I went home, but... (laughs) What did he say? I think by that time he was like, okay, are you okay? Are you safe? That was weird. Don't talk to that guy again. That was about it. (laughs) It's something that I, yeah, that you see changing a lot is just what sort of behavior women are less and less willing to put up with on a daily basis in their workplace. And it's making people, men and women, I think, much more aware of themselves, maybe not entirely 
self-aware, but more self-aware than they would have been, say, like five years ago. And we do find with the, the younger generation, our own daughters and the young women we're sending out into the world, they're much more likely to to speak up, not just to shut up and put up with things. And Julie and I frankly think that that's kind of a mistake we made. I mean, we kind of thought, you know, keep your head down, do great work, work harder than anybody else, bring up other women behind you, keep your seat at the table, and we would solve the problems. And and clearly we didn't. Well, I think I would disagree on that a little bit. I wouldn't necessarily say that you didn't solve things, but <laughs> I think it's always hardest for whoever comes first. Yeah, no, I think that's true. And I and I agree that we did make progress. We did make things better. We just didn't solve all the problems. I'm hoping this next generation is able to finish that. But we, I really see this in waves. I mean, we're kind of a second wave of women who came into newsrooms. The real pioneers were the women who were coming into newsrooms like in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s and the ones who filed the lawsuits in the 1970s. They were the real pioneers. You know, we benefited from that. We had doors open to us and sort of just said, you know, took that for granted that the doors were open to us, at least to get in and to make an attempt. One of the stories we tell in the book is about Aggie Underwood, who was one of the first female city editors in a newspaper in L.A., who literally, you know, she had been a crime reporter, a sort of very well-known crime reporter. She would become city editor, and she keeps a baseball bat on her desk and a gun with blanks inside one of her drawers. And, you know, she had to be so tough to get the respect of all these men who worked for her. I mean, that's very different than what we walked into. And, and I think, you know, the interesting thing is, as it's gotten better, it also gets subtler and harder to find so that she knew exactly what she was facing. Yeah, she'd just take out her gun and fire it at the ceiling when she needed to get their attention. Yeah, right. (laughs) True, true, actually true. But, you know, for us, it's like people would still say things. You know, someone said to me once, I I applied for an editor job, and he said, well, you can't be an editor because you don't dress like an editor. You know, people wouldn't say that now, but they may still think it. And so in some ways, I think for younger women, it's really, it's almost more difficult because it's a little subtler than it was for us. And women told us that. Young women told us that. To the point that it's like, am I crazy? Did that just really happen? (laughs) And it breeds self-doubt and insecurity, which can be very debilitating. I totally believe that. I can think of many instances in some former jobs where Someone says something offhand or they usually it's a spoken thing and you hear it. And my instinct was to go, oh, that was super offensive or like that was really inappropriate. And then like 20 seconds go by and nobody else reacts to it. And I think, am I I overthinking this? Oh, but it sounded like he meant, but kind of maybe it's just, oh, just let it go. The day will go by faster if I don't say anything. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Your point reminds me that Julie and I have been trying to really make the point that men need to be included in this conversation. Another mistake that we made was we we did talk to other women, some our husbands. We just really didn't bring men into the conversation about these kinds of experiences or what we were feeling or facing in in newsrooms. And I do think that's really important, not just for the women, but for the men. 
especially the younger men who are in newsrooms now and who we're sending out into the world from journalism school, they they want to help. They want to be part of this. They just often don't know what to do. Well, and just to show the hard work on that is Kristen and I last week were in Toronto for a journalism educators conference, and they had a panel that was promoted and it was in the program about talking about this issue. And we show up and we have a room, nice size room of, you know, probably 30 or 40 people. And it was all women except for my husband, Crispin's husband, our male boss. And then there was one other guy. And I was like so excited that some random guy showed up. I'm like, isn't that great? And Kristen's like, no, no, no. He was a friend of mine. (laughs) (laughs) A little discouraging. (laughs) Well, men do listen to this podcast, so to the men that are listening to this episode, first of all, uh, thank you guys for still listening and not tuning out after you heard three women's voices all on the same program. Uh, Bravo to you. What message would you like to impart to those men right now? Something that they don't realize they're doing, or if they do see it, a great thing they can do to stamp it out right then and there, because the best way to to stop inappropriate behavior is to confront it when it happens, not, you know, after the fact or into a glass of wine with your friends later. Yes. You know, obviously in the past year, year and a half, there's been so much focus on sexual harassment, but that is only the tip of the iceberg. You know, there's also all the microaggressions that happen where you're ignored, you're talked over, various things happen. And I think men can play such an important role. One story that one woman told us in the book, which I think is so such a crazy story, is so it's she's out with a group of corporate executives and some of her male colleagues. She's the only woman in the group. And the high-level person decides it would be fun after a few drinks to play the game, you know, do I want to sleep with this person? Do I want to marry this person? Or do I want to kill this person? A little different language on how the game's constructed, but you know, you know the game. And And they're talking about people... In the company. I mean, it's not like, you know, movie stars or something. There are people in the company. And at some point, she finally gets up and says, I need to go and just walks out. And I'm like, that's the moment where you hope one of the male colleagues would have said something. You know, and I think that there's so many places and ways that they hear things that we never hear that standing up in those moments and showing some bravery is really important. And the second is paying attention and listening. Because, you know, I think that men sometimes don't understand what we mean when we talk about being talked over or not listened to. If you're sort of looking for the cues and you just sort of sit quietly in a meeting, you'll see five examples of it. And so if I could sort of use their trained journalism skills and sort of focus it that way and then be brave on those moments when they see things, I think we would make huge progress. I'll add just one thing. Even if you're not brave enough to (laughs) speak up at the moment, just circling back to that woman and acknowledging what happened can be very powerful. Because as we said, women can start thinking, you know, am I just crazy? Did this really happen? You know, am I the only one? And just having that affirmation that, yeah, that happened and it wasn't cool and I saw it. Are you okay? Or just even that much I think can be can be really meaningful. Yeah. I will say a a fun little game, and I put game in many quotes, that I like to play with myself sometimes in meetings when there's, especially when there's more men than women in the meeting, 
just kind of notice how uh, when the when one of the women start talking, how many of the men actually watch her when she's talking versus whether or not they watch any other men that start talking. Or if they just, as soon as the woman starts talking, they just kind of like look down at their notes or look down at their paper or whatever. Maybe it doesn't mean anything in that particular moment, but I always think it's it's kind of funny how um, there's these sort of subtle subconscious things about how much attention people pay to women when they're talking versus men. I mean, I, I'm not I keeping any data on it, but I will say like more often than not, the eyes look downward when the woman starts talking. All right, I'm going to pay more attention to this. One thing I think women can do in meetings, something that happens often to women in meetings, is they'll bring up something and then the conversation just keeps going, continuing. And then two, three, five, ten minutes later, a guy will bring up something very similar to what the woman had suggested earlier and will sort of pass it over, and people pay more attention to that. And I can tell you what I have done for years when that happens to me is I'll say not in a like a particularly angry way, but I'll just say, yeah, that is a good idea. And I just said it five minutes ago. <laughs> I'll say that. And people will go, oh, I mean, some of it is just recognizing, being aware of that. I'll say, I'm glad you liked my idea. Oh, there, that's another way. Yeah. (laughs) In talking to um, all the different women mentioned in this book, what were some of the managerial tactics or managerial styles that, that you heard that you really liked that you think would be good for other people to replicate, male or female? I think there is no one managerial style that works for all women. There isn't one that works for all people. But the women we talk to specifically, a lot of people, about this issue of how they find a leadership style that works for them, it has to be authentic to them. So you're going to have a range of styles all the way from, you know, we sort of give three extreme examples of styles, one being Christiana Amanpour, who's a very you know, she's out there, she's strong, she's powerful, unafraid, and says it like it is. Intimidating to many people. And then we have Diane McFarlane, who was the uh, the publisher in Sarasota, who's now dean of the journalism school at the University of Florida. And she's very much sort of a, a Southern Belle personality. You know, she managed her newsroom by, you know, raising an eyebrow when she was disappointed in somebody. And that worked for her, right? And then in between is someone like Susan Goldberg, who is the head of uh, head of National Geographic, and she sort of started out on the Christiane side and then moved a little bit more to the Diane side. A lot of women say that they have they have learned to moderate or modulate their behavior and find that semi narrow path that works for them. A lot of books talk about this, you know, a lot's been written on this. Is that you've got to figure out what's right. I was most intrigued with Melissa Bell. You know, and, and it sort of goes to the title of our book. The title of the book is based on the idea that every one of us had an experience where at some point we cried. Some older woman took us into the bathroom and said, don't ever do that again. And we told a lot of women that. Yeah. <laughs> right? You know, that it's like it just shows weakness, right? Well, Melissa Bell, who runs Vox Media, cries in the newsroom. And I talked to some of her staff who talked about her doing that. In fact, she cried during interviews with me. She is a very empathetic, warm, charismatic woman. 
And that, I think, is part of her secret sauce. It's part of what makes her so powerful. People love Melissa. I mean, she's brilliant and creative and has done amazing work in making Vox what it is. But she's also a great leader. And I think that style works for her. I would tell you, I'm not sure that would work for me. It wouldn't work for me, you know, but she's figured out a way to make that work. And so I do think sometimes I always think, you know, I always get nervous when it's young women are like, well, what should I be? And it's like, it's got to be authentic to you and fit for the culture, right? I mean, that Melissa probably couldn't walk into certain newsrooms and do that. At the Washington Post, she couldn't do this. You know, but she's been fortunate and brilliant enough to sort of create her own culture and be able to make that work for her. I think... Many of us have been in offices where we've seen men shout and throw things around. And like you said, somehow that's okay, but like tearing up because we're so stressed, because this is stressful work, that's not okay. But I think that might be changing as well. We do think it's changing. Yeah. And not entirely, but I'm still not quite prepared to tell my daughter it's okay if she cries in the newsroom. <laughs> but I, we're moving in that direction. <laughs> If there were more women in journalism as reporters, as editors, you know, in any other different roles in news, what do you think that would look like in terms of, you know, enticing people, men and women, to go into journalism in the first place? And also, how do you think that might make news coverage look? Because, you know, you talk about how you need a diversity of people writing the news to make sure that a diversity of perspectives and diversity of coverage are presented. So I'm wondering if more women were in news and were covering those same stories that men are covering now, how might that make news coverage look a little different? So I think one of the best examples is the Times coverage on sexual harassment. It actually, interestingly enough, began with Donald Trump, where they were talking about after the Access Hollywood story broke. I don't know if you remember, but there were some women who came forward and not to talk about Donald Trump, but just to talk about their sexual harassment experiences in general. And there were a group at the start of the Me Too movement. Yeah, this is before. And so there were a group of women editors and reporters in a room talking about what to do. And they're sort of and they're pretty narrow talking about how to follow the Access Hollywood story. And Jody Kanner, one of the reporters, says, this is a bigger story than Donald Trump. This is about, you know, women being sexual harassed in all sorts of ways, and we need to unmask these harassers. And that's really what catapulted their coverage and led to the Harvey Weinstein coverage and everything that's happened since. Hard to imagine a group of, you know, if you'd had a, a different composition of that meeting, that would have happened. And so I, I can't think of a better example of that. And so... What would it lead to? I think it would lead to coverage that would be more relevant to people. And, you know, there's so so sexual harassment, as we've seen with the Me Too movement, every woman has a story. Those stories do very well. But it's only when women push for them. I mean, think about the Jeffrey Epstein story. That was a woman at the Miami Herald doggedly pursuing that story for, gosh, a decade. And actually a woman editor of the Miami Herald pushing that story in the national press ignored that until pretty recently. I would add that it's not just about numbers, though. It also, 
I think there needs to be attention to and changes made in uh, culture and policies and HR procedures and how you report things and pay structures. And there are a lot of structural things that I think also need to be addressed if things are really going to change. I mean, the fact is, the majority of people coming out of journalism school are women. So it's not like there aren't people interested in the work, but somehow they fall off through the process. Yeah. I mean, one of the things we looked at is while journalism schools are predominantly women, two-thirds to three-fourths female enrollment at almost every journalism school, and women enter newsrooms at about the same number as men do, after about 8, 10, 12, 15 years, the ratios start changing, where it's clear the women are dropping out. And, you know, some people say, oh, they dropped out because, you know, they're having kids and, you know, family's more important to them than their jobs. But the research actually suggests that's not true, that women value their careers as much as men do. But there's just a lot of other stuff happening in the workplace that ends up being sort of a disappointment, like it's not really living up to what they expected it to be. And that's what really figures into their decisions to drop out. And then carrying that a step further, if women are dropping out 10, 15 years into their careers, that means they're not in the pipeline to lead, which means you have fewer women at the top of the organizations as well. But when it comes to the the family, you know, issue and women who do decide that they, you know, they want to have a family or they want to have kids, I think it seems like it's still really hard for them to make that decision if they want to stay in news, even though, you know, some things are changing and some some laws have changed that require, you know, facilities for women to pump, you know, at the office if after they've given birth and, you know, Laws around like, you know, maternity leave, for example, and things like that still haven't haven't really changed very much, if at all. So well, the U.S. is way behind most other countries. And most women in this country don't have paid maternity leave and paternity leave, which is yeah. also equally, I would say, equally important to get the dad to sort of understand. Almost equal. Almost equally as important. I, OK, yeah, fair. <laughs> all right. fair. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, yeah, yeah, I think this goes to Kristen's point about, you know, that there's policies and procedures. I mean, Kristen has three kids. I have two. So we figured it out. But the policies weren't there to help us. I actually had an easier time of it because of the news organization I worked at, at least had six weeks off paid. And my daughter, who just had a child last year, didn't have that. So it has not gotten better. I went to a, a conference for women in journalism a couple years ago, and they had an entire panel about basically how to make it work, how to balance your personal life with your work life. And I will say the women on that panel, you know, all talked about having to make some really serious sacrifices. And they none of them said it was easy. They all said they needed help. They needed a support network to help them you know, get their kids from point A to point B or had to miss one function over another or had to, you know, make sure that they that their spouse could, you know, fill in when they weren't there, et cetera. So it still just doesn't seem like that is something that men have to deal with, even though more men are taking on more family, you know, responsibilities with their kids and whatnot. It's still a burden that is disproportionately placed on women but maybe if more women are in charge, they will see that and that will change for their for their female colleagues. 
we have a chapter where we talk about balancing work and home, and, and the focus of the chapter is Sandy Rowe, who was the uh, editor of the Oregonian, was chair of the Pulitzer Committee, probably you know one of the top editors of our time. And she has two daughters that she raised. And we selected her because it worked out in the end. And I know that sounds sort of crazy. And she talks about all those things she talked about. I mean, you know, not she having, had incredible support. You know, she was fortunate enough that she was able to have someone who could help take care of the girls. Her husband was a lawyer. He eventually gave up his career to support her career and moved halfway across the country for her. And my husband did the same thing. And Julia's husband pretty much did the yeah. same thing, too. So, I mean, it sort of tells that story. But the fact is now... Her daughters are fabulous. They live within like a mile of each other. They, it's like everything you dream of, you know, that I think I told her, I said, oh my gosh, you're, you're, you're my role model again. Because it's like, I do think we buy into this thing of like, well, if you're not there for a soccer game, you're going to be a terrible mom. You know, my view is if I had like been a stay at home mom, I would have been an even worse mom. My kids are being counseling. <laughs> my kids would be in jail. Um, so... I mean, I agree with you that, you know, the policies and processes are way behind and definitely need to change. But I also think we sort of beat ourselves up sometimes. Every woman we talked to had a story about, I forgot my kid at the soccer game during 9-11. Oh, yeah. You know, not going home for three days, you know. And I love the story. Was it um, uh, Janet Coates or I, I Jan Leach. It was Jan Leach. Jan Leach is in the newsroom in Akron, right? And she has twins, and her husband calls her up on the day the Twin Towers fell, fell and their schools are closing, and he says, where are the twins? And she says, I don't know, I'm busy, and hung up the phone, <laughs> and then felt really badly about that afterward. But I think the best advice, I think it came from Mindy uh, Marquette. Mar Marquette. Yeah, she's the editor of the, the Miami Herald, and she said, she put it this way, she said, you can have everything, maybe, but not all at the same time. That it's really not a 50-50 proposition at any one moment in time. You know, half work, half family. That sometimes it's 100% work and zero family, and sometimes it's the other way around. And I thought that was a really sensible way of looking at it. Yeah, some cases like us, you know, we had husbands who really gave up a lot to make sure that we could do what we want with our careers. Some didn't have kids or get right. married at all. Some did. Some people took time off. There are two women, one at the Wall Street Journal and one at ABC News, that rose very high in the organizations and took some time off to go part-time. Or did job shares like Kate O'Brien yep. did. So, I mean, I think people figure it out in different ways. To your point, they shouldn't have to, but I would hate for people to feel discouraged by it because it's certainly possible. Okay. That's hopeful for, <laughs> that's hopeful for a lot of people <laughs> to hear. <laughs> I think there's a lot in this book that a lot of people will be able to identify and hopefully there will be things in here that women will read and go, oh, thank God that's not happening anymore. But there's also going to be things that, you know, women will read and say, oh, yeah, that's definitely happening, but at least it, I'm not the only one. And, you know, I'm not making this up. This is this is a thing that many other people are dealing with. So, you know, I had either way, it should give just, people some hope for the future, I, I think. Yeah, it, it absolutely is about hope. Thank you both so much, Kristen and Julia, for joining us on today's episode of It's All Journalism. Once again, the book is called There's No Crying in Newsrooms, What Women Have Learned About What It Takes to Lead. 
we uh, you know, hope that uh, people can can find this book and share it and um, pass on the wisdom of it to their colleagues and other women in the field. Thank you both so much for your time. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the people who make the news. You can find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. And while you're there, you can also sign up for the It's All Journalism newsletter. You get all the latest info about our podcast, including episode notes and news about live events and upcoming interviews. Go to itsalljournalism.com to subscribe. It takes a lot of people to create an episode of It's All Journalism. Nicola Grisco produced this episode. Amber Healy writes our web content. Nick Dubray wrote our theme music. Nicholas Hunter provided a web assist. And our host is Michael O'Connell. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. I'm Amelia Brust, and thanks for listening. <laughs>